We continue in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Now, deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 8. Deacons. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Deacons likewise. You will note that in verses 8 to 13, when he describes the deacons, he has characteristics that he has already mentioned, many of them that he's already mentioned above, in regards to the deacons. That's why he says likewise. The one thing that he does not mention is their ability to teach. Their ability to teach is not mentioned, as it is in 1 Timothy 3.2 for the overseer. It is mentioned, but not for them. The deacons have to have knowledge. They have to adhere to the faith. They need to believe in it. And they need to know what they're talking about and what they believe. But they don't need to be the ones equipped or gifted with the ability to teach others in any formal or public sense. They must be, firstly, men of dignity. Another term for respectable. Honorable, respectable men. They shouldn't be known for doing things that are disrespectful, rude and crude and disorganized kind of behavior. They shouldn't be double-tongued, not double-tongued. To be double-tongued is to be a double-talker, to be a backstabber, to to, to be someone who says one thing to one person and then another thing to another person, and may even be a slanderer. Somebody who's unreliable with his mouth. He should not be that way. He should be one who says what he believes. He means what he says. And he should say that whether to one individual or to two or to two thousand. It doesn't matter who's there. He should just say what's on his mind, the honest truth. He should not be addicted to much wine as above. He should not have these kinds of addictions. This is one of the primary addictions that is a problem. That's why he mentions it. As we said before, that may also relate to other kinds of addictions, such as food. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2 says that there are people who promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 2 Peter 2.19 It's necessary, therefore, to have this self-control and not be a slave, whether to wine or anything else. Even Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27 I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself be disqualified. He practices self-control. The deacons, likewise, should not be fond of sordid gain. They should not have the love of money. They should be content. They should manage their finances properly for themselves, for their households, and have that capability to guide and lead in the church. They should not be fond of sordid gain. They should not be ones who become deacons in the same way the elders should not become elders because they have money. Because they are powerful men in the church. Pastors should not be selecting them on that basis. He should not be selecting deacons who have a love of money and are fond of sordid gain. They should be able to handle money with honesty and decency. Verse 9, 
Instead of all this, they should be holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. He says in verse 16, Great is the mystery of godliness. This mystery of the faith or mystery of godliness is another term for the gospel itself. The gospel itself. Jesus in Colossians 2, verse 2, is called God's mystery, that is Christ himself. The mystery of the faith is the gospel of Christ, and they should hold to this gospel with a clear conscience. They should hold to it with a clear conscience. That means that they should truly believe in this gospel. They should not be deacons because they want to be, be making important decisions, because they want a good reputation in the community. They want people to like them. They want to have control over certain budgets and actions of a local group of people in the, in the community. They should not be deacons for any kind of wrong reason. They should hold to the faith. They should say they are a Christian, a believer, with a clear conscience, without any ill motives. Verse 10, And let these also first be tested. Let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. If they are beyond reproach, blameless, they have these character qualities, these virtues, these aspects of holiness and godliness. If they have these, then let them serve as deacons. This takes time to test. Observation. Watching the, the, the man's actions, words, how he conducts his family, and, and so forth. Then they can serve as deacons. A test has to take place. It's good for the test to take place. It's good to inspect the fruit of the man's life. Verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified. Women must likewise be dignified. Your translation may say wives. If it says wives, that's because the translators believe that the wives mentioned here are the wives of the deacons or the wives of the deacons and the elders. And that's the view I take. I believe that he's meaning that this is a reference to the wives of the elders and the deacons. They should be dignified, not malicious gossips. They should be dignified, respectable women, not malicious gossips. If they are going about here and there, gossiping, slandering, backbiting, if they're doing those kinds of things, creating suspicions in people about one person against another in the church, if they are doing those kinds of things, then they are unfit to be the, the wife of a deacon. They need to have their own life set in order first, and then they can be uh, the wife of a deacon, or the deacon, or the man can be a deacon only in this kind of situation. His wife, in other words, must be temperate, temperate or self-controlled, faithful in all things. Faithful in all things. Does the woman, the wife of the deacon and elder, are these women having these qualities, 
the qualities that are found in Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Titus 2, 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. These women should be godly and be able to teach younger women to practice godliness. They have to be faithful in all things. Faithful in all these expectations that God has of them. Only then can these men who have these godly wives function in these capacities. Now one more thing about verse 11 is the interpretation taken by some to mean that he's referring to female deacons or deaconesses. Deaconesses as a function and position in the local church. That's not the approach that I think is correct, but some have taken that approach so that they have deacons and deaconesses, two bodies or two boards in a church that govern the church. In the Presbyterian model, they have elders who are only men, they have deacons who are men, and then they have a body of deaconesses who are women, and the deaconesses take care of certain duties at the church that are specific to women and families and children. They care for those things in the average, traditional Presbyterian church. The, The women don't do the things that the deacons do. The deaconesses don't do what the deacons do, and they don't Certainly they don't do what the elders do in in that model. I don't think that that's what the apostle is describing here. I think he's describing the wives of the elders and the deacons, that they ought to be godly women. Further, he describes the deacons in verse 12. Let deacons be husbands of one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. These, These same characteristics mentioned above on, uh, in verse 2, 2 and following for the elders is expected here of the deacons. They too need to have a sound marriage, faithfulness in marriage, godliness in their own marriage with one wife, and good managers of their children and their own households. They too. They cannot have unruly children. They cannot be one with a household in disarray, not knowing how to control and how to guide and disciple their own children. They may not be gifted, they may not be able to teach, as verse 2 says, but they should be able to open the Bible, they should be able to encourage the Bible and the reading of the Bible to their children and their wives. They should be doing that and teaching them what it means and explaining or referring them to books or to the pastor or to others who are able to explain to them correctly. They should take them to meetings of the church where the Bible is explained so they understand it accurately. The deacons should be doing that. Then he would be a good manager of their children and own household. Verse 13. He elevates this role of deacon, although he does not have the kind of position of the elder in his case, yet when he lives his life this way before God and before men in the church, verse 13 says, 
for those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Before God and men, they have a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That's what they should be about. They should be about pleasing God and even among men. They, they can only have a high standing among men if they live this kind of life. If they are living this kind of life, then they are qualified to be deacons. Living a life that calls on, on them or characterizes them as having a high standing and great confidence in the faith. They truly do believe the faith. And it shows in how they live. Now we've spoken of the faith. The Apostle has mentioned this a few times. The faith. He describes it in 14 to 16. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. He's write, writing this letter because he's absent. He's not there in Ephesus. He hopes to come before too long to Ephesus to meet Timothy and to advise him accordingly and even with greater detail in person. He wants to come and do so. But he writes this letter so that Timothy is not at a loss. So that Timothy has a concrete way to know, a concrete way to refer to what he needs to do and what he needs to instruct others to do. He's had it verbally before from Paul, but now he has it in literary form. He has it in hand. He has the letter so that he can study it himself and explain it to others so that they can live that way. This is showing Paul's great concern for the local church. He's showing great concern for the church that it be edified. In 2 Corinthians 11, after the apostle has explained the many afflictions that he endured for the sake of the gospel, he says this in 2 Corinthians 11, 28. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Paul saying that apart from such external concerns, all of the persecutions that he endured and all kinds of other afflictions that he endured, apart from the external concerns, I have an internal spiritual concern, this daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. This is the mind of Paul and the heart of Paul. He has this concern for the livelihood and longevity of the church. He wants it to be a godly place. This is why he is compelled to write this letter so that Timothy is not aimless and hopeless in the way he guides his own church. This, uh, too, is showing us the heart of Paul, which should be the heart of Timothy, and which should be the heart of each of us. We should be concerned about the state of our churches. 
the local visible church. How is it functioning? Is it doing that which is in accordance to the will of God? It ought to be. Just as Paul had the concern, we should have this same concern. He says in 15, it relates to obligation. Obligation or responsibility. So that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. How one ought to. This is not a matter of negotiation. It's not a matter of preference. It's not a matter of culture. It's not a matter of how people did things 2,000 years ago. It's a matter of how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. We know he's telling Timothy this in Ephesus. We see a similar letter written to Titus, Titus who was in the island of Crete. He was not in Ephesus, he was in Crete. Their culture, they may have similarities, the, the Ephesian and Cretan cultures, they may have similarities, but they have differences too. It's a different culture. Paul's words here are not man's words, and they're not temporary words for only one kind of culture. Human nature is the same, God's will is the same, and the same remedy to human nature is necessary. And that remedy is the wisdom of God by the written word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit of God who uses this word. That's what everyone needs. That's why he says this is how one ought to conduct himself. This is the obligation of everyone who claims to be a Christian, of every church that claims to be Christian in the household of God. He calls the household of God also the church of the living God. Household. We are God's family. If we're God's family, then let's do according to the will of the Father. And let's help one another. A family that doesn't help one another is not a healthy and wholesome, sound family. A family should help one another. Should look after the interests of one another. It, happen, it should happen in the physical sense, and all the more it should happen in the spiritual sense. There should be concern for one another because it's the household of God, God the Father. If He is our Father, then we ought to behave as His children with one another. It's the church of the living God, this assembly of those who are called by God, this visible assembly and even the spiritual true assembly of God. It's called out by God that meets together, that worships together, that disciples together, that serves together, that helps one another together. It's the church of the living God. We don't meet together in order to bow down to a dead idol. We don't meet together in order to exalt a man. We don't meet together for anything like that. Exalting a man or worshiping a dead idol, both of them are against the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me, and you shall not make for yourselves an idol. We shouldn't be doing that. We're not doing that when we gather. We're not doing that to an idol. We're doing this to and for the living God. We live for Him. He's the one that created the world, and He's the one that saves the world through Christ. He's the living God. We're not dealing with an impotent, powerless, lifeless, dead being. Therefore, we ought to reflect this living God. 
in our community. And look at this honor he heaps upon the household of God, the church of God. It is also called the pillar and support of the truth. How are people going to hear the truth of the gospel unless they hear it from the true church? The true church with the true gospel, with the true Christ, with the truth of God's word, they are the pillar and support of the truth. If the church doesn't do it, who's going to do it? It won't happen. The church is God's means. God uses agents, means, or instruments. He uses you and me, the local church, the visible church, true believers, to be witnesses to the truth. Witnesses in the world of the truth of the gospel. That's who we are. It's us. He's chosen to use us as the pillar in support of the truth. He explains what this truth is in verse 16. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Common confession. This is another example. This common confession is not just for the Ephesians, not just for Timothy, and not just for the Cretans and Titus. It is for all who name the name of Christ. It's a common confession. It's something that should be believed, and then the implications of that transferred into the daily life of the individuals, the families, and the church. He calls it, Great is the mystery of godliness. This is a great and wonderful truth. He summarizes the gospel right here. This is an uncommon summary. We're not used to this kind of summary, yet we can see the gospel right here. He who was revealed in the flesh, or God who was revealed in the flesh, Christ who was revealed in the flesh, He is the one in view right here. This means that we must believe in the deity of Christ. He possesses a divine nature and also a human nature. The divine Christ and the human Christ without sin. God was revealed in the flesh in the person of Christ. He has both natures. We cannot deny the one or the other and call ourselves a Christian. This also implies that we believe in the Father because Christ is the Son of the Father. And if we believe in the Father and the Son, it also implies that we believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If these are denied, these are misunderstood, then we worship a false god. You shall have no other gods besides me. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 6, mention the first two commandments. Have no other god besides me, and not worship an idol. Next he says, was vindicated in the Spirit. Was vindicated in the Spirit. This appears to be a reference to the death and resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ vindicates the crucifixion, the atonement, the death of Christ. It says in Romans chapter 1, he explains the gospel in summary fashion again. Romans 1 verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, 
Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was born of a descendant of David, that's the flesh, part of Jesus, the human nature of Jesus, without sin. And verse 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness. The Holy Spirit's power worked in order to raise Jesus up from the dead. If he died, he, he rose, he died and rose because of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what he means. His vindication came by this miraculous power of the Spirit. The miraculous power of the Spirit it was at work in Christ, but also at work in us. This is an implication of the Gospel. We know this because he says in Romans, the, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. <clears throat> Just as the Holy Spirit vindicated Christ, the Holy Spirit vindicates us too. The Gospels work in us to fruition, ultimately to our own resurrection, give life to our mortal bodies. The Holy Spirit who vindicated Christ is also the one who will vindicate us. The Gospel also includes the fact that angels beheld Him. Angels beheld Him. Angels beheld what all happened to Christ? We see this, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he indicated the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. There we have the gospel. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow in the Old Testament by the Spirit of Christ. Verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. Beheld by angels. The angels who are there serving God, sent out as ministers of God, sent out to render help for the, to us for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Hebrews 1.14 These angels who saw what Christ did and what the powerful Holy Spirit did on behalf of Christ is also... Our audience, this group of angels, they also behold what is doing, what God is doing in our life. How He is transforming us. How He's working in us. 
the angels behold the glories of the gospel in Christ and in the church. The apostle further describes it. He says, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Proclaimed among the nations and then also believed on in the world. Here, the promise of old that the gospel would not only be among the Jewish people, but it would spread across the world, is, was being fulfilled in the first century in the time of the apostles. He even says in 1 Timothy 2.7 that he is a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And prayers are to be offered for kings and all who are in authority because there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The kings that he has in mind there are Roman kings. At least the Roman kings who are in control of that region of the world. He's speaking of the gospel that is proclaimed and believed on in the world. Not only among Jews, but also among Gentiles. The two are coming together under one head, this gospel. Finally, he says that Christ was taken up in glory. To be taken up in glory is a reference to Jesus' ascension. We know from Acts chapter 1 that Christ ascended into heaven. His ascension into heaven is mentioned here in terms of the fact of the ascension. But what is the implication of the ascension? The implication is that He did not die again. His resurrection was immortal, created an immortal body, that there is no second death or second physical death for Christ. And He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. That shows that when He was taken up into glory, that what all was promised in the gospel is continuing to be fulfilled. It also shows that He is there having completed His task on our behalf. He is there in heaven. Hebrews 1 explains. Hebrews 1 verse 3. And He, Christ, is the radiance of His, the Father's, glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He completed His task. He made pur- purification of sins and then He sat down by, after His ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And what does He do there? What does He do? It says in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, verse 24, 7, 24, But He, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Because he abides, remains forever. He did not die again. He ascended into heaven. 25. Hence also, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Christ doing now? 
When we draw near to God through Christ, Christ is there always living to make intercession for us, for us, the church. He's there between His first coming and His second coming, from between His ascension to His return. He is there on our behalf. When He says He's taken up in glory, not just that He's no more in the world, that He's in a glorious state, which is all true. He implies the, uh, these other things that are here for our benefit because of our salvation. Okay.